And turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, verse 11 through 20 is what we'll be looking at tonight. I'm very excited about preaching through Nehemiah. Um, growing up, when I, when I was a, a youth, Nehemiah was actually probably my favorite um, Old Testament scripture to, to go through. Uh, when we went to camp one year, uh, Nehemiah was the, the text that we used uh, for, for the youth camp, and I fell in love with it at that time. And the reason I'm so excited about preaching it it's because as I've been studying for, for preaching my sermons, I've realized I really didn't know Nehemiah like I thought I did. And, and that's the beauty of Scripture. No matter how old we get, no matter how many times we've looked at Scripture, it's always going to surprise us because we realize we don't know it all. And God is actively speaking to us, no matter our age, no matter our level of education, God's Word is always going to speak to us. Uh, so if you're already there, um, let's go ahead and pray before we get started, and then, um, then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to come into your house and worship you once again today. Lord, it's always a, a blessing to be able to come in here and, and, um, and, and worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I pray that you would just be honored by this time. I pray that you would um, just be with me as I, as I preach your word. I pray that you would give me the, uh, the words that you want to convey to, to your flock this morning, or this evening. God, I pray that you would just enlighten our hearts, convict us of sin, and help us to be made more like Jesus. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Okay, so I'm a bit of a history buff. I absolutely love history. I was actually that weird kid in high school that was excited about going to APUS history. Everyone else would groan about going to that class, but I loved it. It was really cool. Um, and I also like to watch movies as well. So when I find a good movie that is focused on historical events, I'm all about it. It's really cool to me. One of my favorite movies like this uh, is, is The Patriot with Mel Gibson. I absolutely love that movie. And I, I know that some historical liberties are taken with that movie, um, but I really enjoy the perspective that it portrays of a neutral American who is forced to join sides in the Revolutionary War. It's very fascinating. Mel Gibson's character, Benjamin Martin, he's a peaceful widower. Um, and he, he wants nothing more than to raise his family away from the violence of the Revolutionary War. Um, unfortunately, the war literally comes to his backyard, and it takes the life of, of one of his sons. This was a turning point in Benjamin's life, um, because he, his desire for revenge causes him to become an officer in the American Minutemen Militia. He becomes the leader of a small group of farmers um, that uh, wreak havoc on the British Army, using unusual tactics for the time. And Benjamin's careful attention to detail, his wisdom, his encouragement to his troops, and his confidence before the enemy are all factors that made him such an effective leader for the militia. You see, Benjamin Martin wasn't looking to become a, a leader. He didn't ask to be given the responsibility of leading a great revolt against the British Empire. But when the opportunity was laid upon him, Benjamin had to use the right tools to get the job done. In a similar way, God's people can be given a, 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 a can be given work to do for His glory without actively looking for it. We can be minding our own business in our day-to-day -day lives when all of a sudden God drops a major opportunity in our laps to carry out His work as a leader. That's exactly what happened to Nehemiah in this text. He was comfortable living his life as the king's gutbearer when all of a sudden God burdened his heart for the restoration of Jerusalem. 
When we are given these opportunities, we have to use the proper tools in order to effectively carry out God's work. And, and that's what we'll be discussing tonight. We'll be looking at some tools that Nehemiah used in order to accomplish God's work. So the first thing that we will notice is that Nehemiah carried out God's work through careful planning and the use of wisdom. Through careful planning and the use of wisdom. It's important that we keep in mind the context of what's going on in this passage. If we're not careful, we can miss a very important detail about Nehemiah's character here. In chapters one and two, we are given the names of important. Uh, excuse me. We are given the the names of months in which certain events occurred. Chapter one, verse one tells us that Nehemiah heard about the awful state of Jerusalem in the month of Kislev. Skipping down to chapter two, verse one, which we talked about last week, Nehemiah, Nehemiah finally brings his plea before the king in the month of Nisan. Now, as Americans with modern day calendars, um, it is easy for us to skip over this information as irrelevant because we don't understand it. We don't know what it means. But the month of Kislev is somewhere around our month of November or December. And then the month of Nisan is around our month of March and April. Using this timeline, we know that there was a whole four-month period between the events of chapter 1 and chapter 2. This means that Nehemiah was in a constant state of mourning and prayer with God over the situation in Jerusalem before he ever brought his request before the king. Four months of mourning and steadfast prayer before he ever addressed the king about this situation. The patience of Nehemiah is astounding here. I don't know about you, but I'm relatively weak in this area. And when I bring a request to God, I start to get a little nervous if I don't get a response quickly. Uh, that's just in my nature. Nehemiah shows great persistence in prayer here by continually laying his request at the feet of God. But his patience doesn't stop here. As we get into our text tonight, verse 11 picks up as Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. If we're not careful, we can assume that the time gap between verse 10 that we stopped in last week and in verse 11 where we pick up tonight is negligible. But we know that that is not the case. Chapter 6 suggests that Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem during the month of Ab. This would be around our July or August. This means that yet another three to four month period uh, has passed from the time that Nehemiah first spoke to the king to the time that he finally arrives in Jerusalem. He had to travel 765 miles to get to Jerusalem, and that's about from here to Louisville, Kentucky, all while thinking about the work that had to be done once he got to the city. That's a long time. It's important to note here the intensity and faithfulness of Nehemiah's prayers. Nehemiah doesn't just pray a couple times to God, uh, before embarking on this task for him. He understood that God was going to use him as a tool, and so he prayed diligently for wisdom. Anyone who wants to be a servant for God's glory should be marked by this same type of prayer. Constant, steadfast, faithful prayer. So Nehemiah has now had about eight months to pray over the task at hand, and he finally arrives at the city of God. What, is, what does the text say he does? Does he immediately go to the nobles and priests? Does he lay out his neatly orchestrated plan that he's been developing for months? Remember, eight months here. Does he just lay it out before the people? Does he tell the people that he knows what to do to restore the, the city uh, to God's glory? Does he say, I've been given the authority by God and by king to restore this place? No. What does it say he does? Verse 11 says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Nehemiah waited. 
He waited. Even though he had every right to, Nehemiah didn't rush in with guns blazing. He waited patiently. Some commentators argue that Nehemiah waited for three days because he needed some rest after his long journey. And there may be some truth to that that might be true to a certain extent. But I tend to believe that Nehemiah understood how damaging it would have been if some stranger came waltzing in and barking orders. That would have been absolutely detrimental to his mission. So what's his next step? Does he call everyone together and rally the troops? No. Again, he is patient. Verse 12 tells us that Nehemiah arose in the night with just a few men to inspect the walls. He quietly slips out of the city with just a couple trusted guys, and he inspects the damage of the city in the dark with just the aid of the moonlight. doesn't even use torches. He only uses the moonlight. Nehemiah did not want to be seen yet. In fact, verse 16 tells us, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. You see, Nehemiah let his God-given wisdom guide his communication and planning here. He didn't know who he could trust yet, and he didn't know if the people would trust him. So rather than rushing into God's work, Nehemiah was patient with his words and actions. He understood that when we're carrying out God's work, it's critical not just to know what to say, but to know when, how, and who to say it to. But the smartest thing that Nehemiah did was that he bathed the situation in prayer. James 1.5 says this, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Nehemiah knew that if there, if there were to be a true that if he were to be a true servant for God and carrying out his work, he needed to ask God for the wisdom that was necessary to be effective. So once the careful planning was done with wisdom, Nehemiah understood that the next step in carrying out God's work was to encourage fellow believers. So Nehemiah carried out God's work by encouraging his fellow believers. So at this point, Nehemiah has taken the time to carefully inspect the wall in secrecy. He has seen the damage, He knows what needs to be done to repair it, and he's formulated a game plan. The next phase of his mission is the actual work that has to be done. So who's going to do the work? Nehemiah is determined to restore Jerusalem to its former glory, but can he possibly expect to do it on its own? Just to give you some perspective of what kind of a task this is at hand, I I want you to get a visual of what this wall looks like. Because I think... Unfortunately, when we think wall, we think like a hedge protector. Before I was born, my dad wanted to build a home for our family, a forever home. He very carefully drew up a plan, and he started the process. He built our house from the ground up using his bare hands by himself. He poured the foundation, he framed the interior, and he laid every brick brick by brick by his hands. My dad worked shift work at the paper mill. So what he would do is he would work his shift, he would clock out, go straight to the new house and work for a few hours, come home, get a couple hours of sleep, go back to work and do it all over again the next day. It took him two and a half years to build this house by himself every single day working on it. That's a long time. So keeping that picture in mind of just building a 1,500 square foot home Let's think about the task of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. 
The length of the entire, uh, in the entire wall was two and a half miles long. The height of the wall was 40 feet tall. And then the average thickness of the wall was 8.2 feet deep. That is a lot of bricks to lay. So even though Nehemiah was determined to accomplish God's work here, he would have been absolutely foolish to possibly think that he could complete the work on his own, even if he just used the few trusted guys that were at his disposal. Nehemiah knew that he desperately needed the help of his kinsmen in order to rebuild this wall. So notice how he addresses the people in verses 17 through 19. First, he talks about the condition that needs action. Next, he gives the people a challenge to the action. And then finally, he gives them the confidence that they need for the action. Notice what he says in verse 17 when he finally begins to address the people. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Nehemiah simply directs the people's attention to the ruin. He lets the destruction speak for itself. The people that lived in or around Jerusalem were, were well acquainted with the poor condition of the city, but they had just begin, begun to live as if it were to give a norm. That was, that was the norm for the day. So by calling their attention to the rubble that they currently stood upon, Nehemiah is trying to awaken their senses to grieve over the state of the situation. Because no change will occur if no need for a change if, if need for a change is not seen. But notice Nehemiah's approach to calling on the Jews. He uses a very specific word that immediately catches the attention of the people. He says, We. He uses the word we. Remember, Nehemiah is not from Jerusalem. In fact, he's from the capital city of the foreign nation that currently occupies and controls Jerusalem. And then on top of that, he's even a trusted official of the Persian king himself. What kind of claim could Nehemiah possibly have here in Jerusalem? Well, by using the word we, Nehemiah is identifying himself with his brothers and sisters of God. He's effectively saying that any high position that he has, any, any riches that he possesses, any rights that he is privy to are all, uh, are all counted as nothing compared to the privilege of being one of God's children. That's what he's saying here when he counts himself as we. This resonates with the people. The people know that he is for real and that his motives are genuine. So now that me and Nehemiah has their attention, he then gives them a challenge to action. See what the second half of verse 17 says. It says, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. So here's where all the months of prayer and preparation come to a climax for Nehemiah. He has finally laid out his desire before the people. He's made it clear that his wish is to restore Jerusalem to its glory by first rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah no longer wants God's people to be a reproach. So in order to understand the impact of this statement, we first have to understand where Israel is used to being. This takes us back to Genesis 17 at the very beginning, when God first makes a covenant with Abraham, and then later when God makes a covenant with Moses. These covenants were established to show that Israel was set apart as God's chosen people. They were handpicked by God and had received his blessings. They were transplanted into this beautiful land promised by God and had complete control over their surroundings and over their opposing, uh, the opposing armies. But look at how far they've fallen now. 
not only has their capital city been destroyed, but they've been removed from the land altogether. They've been in exile. Their temple, where God's spirit dwelled, it lay in ruins. God's people had gone from the very top down to the very hard rock bottom of life. To say that they had become a reproach was an understatement. Israel had become a joke to those around them. An absolute joke. This is why Nehemiah, This is why we see Nehemiah lamenting back in, in chapter 1. He sees the state that Israel has fallen into, and he knows that it's because of their sin. Nehemiah is not just saying, let's not be a reproach to those around us. He's more importantly saying, let's not be a reproach to the God who holds us. But we see that special phrasing again. We see Nehemiah use the word us. He made it abundantly clear that he is willing to put in the sweat equity here. He's not expecting the people to do his bidding. Nehemiah is ready to work alongside the people in order to accomplish the goal at hand. Have you ever had a manager at work that wasn't willing to roll up his sleeves and get the job done? I once worked for a general manager at a store uh, that was like that. He would always have these weekly meetings where he would tell us what we were going to do the week and how we were going to accomplish all of our goals and we were going to look so great to corporate. And um, then when the time came for the work to be done, he'd make like a tree and leave. He was gone. You could find him in his office clipping his fingernails and drinking his coffee. And it drove us absolutely bonkers. And funny enough, out of God's sovereignty, I saw him for the first time this week in seven years. And it made me laugh because I said... You knew I was writing this, God. You're funny. You got a sense of humor. But there's a reason why his weekly pep talks were ineffective. They were unconvincing. It was because we knew that when the rubber met the road, our leader wasn't willing to do the work alongside his employees. An effective leader doesn't do this. An effective leader is like Nehemiah, and he encourages people by making them know that he's willing to stand in the trenches with them and get the work done. If you really want God's work to be done, you have to be the one willing to encourage your fellow believers by doing the work too. You want to see a revival in this country? Then get busy showing your community what Jesus looks like. You want to see a deeper commitment for Jesus in the church? Then pour your life into others and disciple someone. You want to see the cycle break of kids that grow up in the church only to disappear after graduation? then take the time to make sure they understand that Christ is the center and most important figure in the family. You've got to be doing, willing to do the work. You can't, expect God's, uh, you can't expect God's work to be done in this world if you're not first willing to do the work yourself. Show the rest of the church body what it looks like to carry out God's work and be an encouragement to them. Now that Nehemiah has given the people a challenge to action, he finishes by giving them the confidence that they need to carry out the action. Look at verse 18. Look at what it says. It says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable, favorable to me and also about the king's word which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Nehemiah finally picks the right time to show his hand. He's been holding back the information about his mission and its funding, but he knows that this is the right time to finally reveal it. He has just encouraged everyone to embark on a very hard task. So it's absolutely necessary for him to give them a reason why they should hope for success. Because remember, 
this work has already been attempted once before, and it wasn't completed. We learn from the book, from the book of Ezra that a group of Jews had already tried to rebuild the temple once before. But because of fear from surrounding enemies, the work was never completed. And on top of that, it was the current king that put a stop to the work. So why should this time be any different? Why should it be any different? Nehemiah gives them the very reason that this time would be different. He explains that God has ordained his position within the king's court, and that, he, that, and that had given him special access to the king himself. And now, with the blessings and funding of the king and of their God, nothing could stand in the way of God's work. This is the confidence booster that the people needed. With this knowledge, they were convinced of God's provision, and they were ready to try again. And listen to how they respond to Nehemiah's charge. Second half of verse 18 says, uh, Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Church, we must be able to encourage our fellow believers to join in with us in accomplishing God's work here on earth. We don't all have to be charismatic leaders with big lofty speeches. We We don't have to be like that. And we certainly don't have to be pastors with seminary degrees. Each and every one of us has the capacity to encourage the church body to point the world to Jesus Christ. We all have that capacity. Our words and our actions carry much further than we realize and can impact those around us for God's glory. Encourage your brothers and sisters and see what God can do through you. So far we've seen that in Nehemiah's attempt to carry out God's work, he has used wisdom and careful planning, and he has encouraged his fellow believers to help him. The final aspect that we will look at tonight is that he faced opposition confidently. He faced opposition confidently. It's no surprise to us when we see that Nehemiah is instantly faced with controversy from enemies. The Jews have been dealing with, with opposition for centuries at this point. God even promised that there would be conflict between his people and the world all the way back in Genesis 3 when he says to, uh, to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Ultimately, we know that this prophecy was pointing toward the fact that Jesus Christ would defeat Satan. But it was also a promise that there would always be conflict between those that belong to Satan and those that belong to God. We see the effects of this promise here as Nehemiah is immediately faced with opposition from Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Now, I, I like to call these guys the three amigos. That's what I'm going to refer to these guys as. They're, they're the three amigos. So just a quick little side note about these three amigos. They were not very nice guys. Let's look at exactly who they are in order to understand what role they play in the context of this story. First, we have Samballat the Horonite. Samballat was the governor of Samaria. He was given authority to rule in Samaria, just like Nehemiah was given authority to rule in Jerusalem. Now, Samaria is to the north of Jerusalem, but was once part of the nation of Israel itself. Samballat was a Moabite. The Moabites were a people that the Israelites failed to eliminate from the promised land like they were commanded to do. We see what happens when the Israelites don't follow God's commands. Stuff like this happens. You might realize that the Samaritans play an important role in the New Testament. Um, This is because the Jews that were left in Samaria intermarried with the Moabites and the other pagans of the land, and they formed a hybrid Jewish belief system. Now, this caused much strife between the devout Jews 
and the Samaritans later down the road. And this isn't you know all that important for this particular story, but I think it's important for us to be able to connect the dots of Scripture. We can see how this now plays a big part in the New Testament. So next we got Tobiah the Ammonite. This guy was the governor of the lands across the Jordan to the east of, of uh, Jerusalem. He is actually part Jewish, which causes some serious issues later in this book. He's got tons of influence within the Jewish sect in Jerusalem, so he ends up using some of his people in, in Jerusalem as spies against Nehemiah. Believe it or not, he's also kin to the high priest. So when Nehemiah comes back down the, years down the road, he finds that the, that the priest has made a room for Tobiah in the temple itself. This is a really big no-no, big-time no-no. And Nehemiah loses his mind over it. But we'll talk about that later as we, as we get further into the book. And then finally, there's Geshem the Arab. Geshem led the area of the Edomites to the south. Now, they're another group of people that Israel failed to destroy like they were supposed to. Now, this may seem like a lot of unnecessary information at, at face value, but think about what I've just told you. Nehemiah has enemy leaders from the north, the south, and the east. The only direction that doesn't have enemies is the west. And what's there? An ocean. The Mediterranean Sea. What this means is that Nehemiah and God's people are completely surrounded. They have no way of escape. While they are trying to carry out God's work, they are being bombarded from every direction. And to be frank, we're going to encounter this as well when we are trying to accomplish God's work. We will feel like we are being attacked from every side. It's important for us to notice how Nehemiah responds to this opposition. So what do the three amigos have to say when they hear about the plans to rebuild the wall? They say this, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? We see that in verse 19. It's mockery and scare tactics. It worked against the Jews back in the book of Ezra, so why not try it again? They were trying to rattle the people by belittling their plans and making it seem like the king may have the wrong idea about their intentions. Fear could have been the undoing of Nehemiah at this point. Fear of failure, fear of ridicule, and even fear of death. Fear could have taken hold of Nehemiah and made him run back to his comfy position at the king's side where he was safe. Because remember what Pastor Justin talked about last week. The king still wanted Nehemiah. He didn't want him to be gone long because he was very important to the king. So it could have been easy for Nehemiah to let fear grip him and to run back home with his tail tucked. But fear didn't control Nehemiah. Notice what he says in response in verse 20. He says, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. No portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah responds with confidence to this opposition. But notice what his confidence is in. It's not in the written orders that he's got from the king, because remember, he's got sealed letters. His confidence is not in those sealed letters. It's not in his master plan that he's been developing for months. It's not even in the fact that he identifies as a Jew. It's in the strength of God. God is the only source of his confidence here. 
Nehemiah's confidence is sourced in texts like Isaiah 49 where it says, Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Nehemiah had confidence because he knew that his God was faithful to his promises. So there was no need to fear the opposition of man. As we conclude tonight, I want us to take a moment to step back and look at the main character of the story. And you might be thinking, isn't that what we've been doing all night? Isn't that what we've been doing? We've been talking about Nehemiah, right? Well, you are right. We have been talking about Nehemiah all night. But guess what? He's not the main character of this story, or even this book. Jesus is. You might say, Jesus, I don't see Jesus anywhere here in the text. I don't see him show up until later on. You see, I'm convinced that we get into this mentality of reading the scriptures, especially the Old Testament narratives, as stories with morals. Guys, the scriptures are so much more than that. They are not just a book of morals. The whole reason that Pastor Justin went over the biblical narrative last week was to show how the Bible follows the redemptive plan from beginning to end. And the only character that shows up in each story of the Bible is God. God is the only one who shows up in every page of Scripture. He is the common denominator. He is the main character of this story. So here in Nehemiah chapter 2, we see that the only reason Nehemiah has these remarkable gifts of leadership is because they are given to him by God, who is the perfect example of these gifts. If we want to know how to carry out God's work here on this earth, look no further than the life of Jesus Christ. That's where we look. Jesus has already perfectly fulfilled the work that the Father has set him out to do. Jesus gave up his heavenly throne to be born as a peasant in this world that we have broken. He lived every moment of his life without sin because we are unable to. He directed people's attention to the Father because he deserves all the glory. He went to the cross and became our sin because he was the only person that ever could. He died a traitor's death so that we don't have to. He separated himself from the Father because he didn't want us to. He raised himself up from the dead and into his full glory because he's our loving God. Now think about the principles that we've talked about tonight. And think about how they relate to Jesus. Jesus perfectly carried out his his Father's work here on earth because he carefully planned out the redemptive plan long before time ever began. He used wisdom that we can't even imagine as he lived here on this earth. He encouraged his believers exactly how they needed to be encouraged and exactly at the right time. And he faced the opposition of his adversaries with unshakable confidence. I want us to realize that we can have this same confidence when we are trying to accomplish God's work because we have the one who has already perfectly carried out the Father's will. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then his sacrifice is where your confidence lies. As we carry out God's work of directing people's attention to the glory of God, the only confidence that we need is in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're sitting here and you're unsure 
about whether or not your confidence is really in Jesus, then I urge you to come talk to someone tonight. I'll be down front after the prayer, and so will our pastors. Grab someone. Ask us more questions. Because without the confidence of Jesus Christ, you have no confidence at all. Your hope is in yourself. And that will count as nothing when you come face to face with the one true God who has created you. So here's the big picture application question for tonight. Here's what I want you to take away for tonight. How can you be a servant for the work of God like Nehemiah? God used an unlikely man in an unlikely situation to carry out his work. Nehemiah was living very comfortably. He was living a very comfortable life miles away from the ruins of Jerusalem. He had no idea what was going on in Jerusalem. And yet, God called him out of his comfort zone to go out and boldly serve him. So how can God call you out of your comfort zone to carry out his work? Are you willing to listen to the call of God? Are you? Be prepared to let God use you as a tool for his glory and submit to his will. Let's pray.